What up? This is Dart Adams, and this is episode 70 of Dart Against Humanity. So, Happy New Year, first of all. And what I've been doing lately is I've been doing a lot of research, just trying to figure out. Because once you get there's a transition period coming from nobody's working during the um the Christmas holiday. Nobody. So let's say I was going back and forth with a literary agent, hypothetically, but also in real life. It's going to be a while before I actually hear back from them about anything. And like, let's say that you're going back and forth with anybody because, again, gig economy and everything relies on you being able to get things done by a certain time and you're on uh, time constraints and you have limits and you have to get things in by a certain time to submit your um, invoices, what have you, right? So you need to get everything going so that you have income coming in starting in January because, you know, rent's due, everything else is due, Comcast and Xfinity doesn't care that nobody else is at work. You need to hustle. So that means that I have to get into this transition period where I have to start planning out uh, things that I'm doing so I get a check coming soon. That means that I have to start researching or putting out feelers. So one of the things I'm researching is now that it's 2020, there's a whole new um, thing for anniversary pieces or retrospectives, what have you. And now that switches from, since it's 2020, we go from 2015, 2010, 2005, 2000. And that's the cutoff for just like almost everybody else. Pretty much everybody can write about those years if you're in this space right now. Then there's a little extra bonus round, you know, for 1995. You can do adequate research or there's enough stuff out there for you to stretch it and do 1995 stuff. Okay? That's like medium. To do it really well, uh, the difficulty is a little higher. Because you have to have like better memory or you have to have access to um, better information. But 1995 is still doable. This is where it gets tough. This is where I reside. 1990, 1985, 1980. Now, if you're a rap writer, the cutoff is about 1980 because... Recorded raps began 1979, so that's last year. There isn't a whole lot of uh, hip-hop slash rap history that you can go into in 1975. So the cutoff is 1980. So 80, 85, 90, and then 95 is like that gray area where you can write about something in 95, but somebody else is going to jump in and write about it too. So what I start doing is I start researching and looking for subject matter, things that I could do in that space. So things I've been working on. First thing I was pitching is um, a piece about how 1990 was going to be the year, regardless of how we looked at it, that there were finally going to be a number one rap song to top the uh, Billboard Hot 100. It was finally going to happen. So if you look at 1989 and you look at uh, the popular rap songs that actually did super well and went very high on the um, pop charts, crossing over. So of course you have like De La Souls, Me, Myself, and I, which kind of takes off. It gets released February 14th, 1989. And again, De La Soul's album did not come out March 3rd, 1989. I keep telling people this. Um, they don't listen. There's proof already. I've posted pictures that the album was out 
already in February. Anyway, so that's album, that song comes out February 14th, um, 1989. It blows up. It does very well. It crosses over, right? Uh, you have other songs like um, Wild Thing by Tone Loke does really well. Funky Cold Medina by Tone Loke does very well. Um, <clears throat> you also have uh, Bust a Move by Young MC does really well. Just a Friend does really well at the end of the year. Expression does really well at the end of the year, 1989, going into 1990. So you look at the charts and you start looking and you look and you notice that, yo, at some point, because they pretty much rappers had already figured out the formula to have a pop rap song, a song that crosses over and does well. But someone's going to figure out how to get the number one billboard chart um, listing. So that's one thing that I'm covering. And I'm also in another angle that I wanted to do is why did it take so long for a rap song to hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100? What was keeping it from happening? What were the different factors? Um, And... I was researching this. I started researching this like three months ago. I do everything ahead of time. I'm like Batman with prep time. That's kind of my thing um, because I don't really sleep. So I figure out some of the angles. And also another thing that I figured out, right? That something that stumped me and all my my recent time really being able to have um, archives available and looking at numbers and looking at uh, charts, I didn't realize until I saw it in print and Billboard that what Billboard did was they actually took the um, the black music charts and they reported first. So they reported the black music charts and the sales early and then the uh the pop and the pop and rock charts they did later in the week so there's going to be a discrepancy so that means that sometimes a song or an album that should rightly be in the um hot black singles or um top black albums will actually debut for some odd reason and the Billboard 200 or on the dance charts ahead of when it should be, you know, on the hot black singles, which is what it was called back then. Or the um, the top black albums before it was called the R&B albums. And that started to make sense. I'm like, OK, this makes sense. And also you start noticing that there are different um, things like previous to 1995, there was a. There was a, a loophole where if a song was played on the radio enough and they didn't have um, and it just come out and they didn't have the sales uh, numbers to report officially on by the time the billboard charts came out. If the sales, I mean, if the plays on radio or, or the club were high enough, it could chart without having the sales reported. If it was in the top 100, that's something that they cut off after 1995. So this actually happened to. Um, I reported this happening on um, Welcome to the Not Welcome to the Terror Dome. It was um, Fight the Power. So Public Enemies Fight the Power. This happened, and I was like, "Wait a minute!" I so I discovered that. So that was some crazy thing, but um. I discovered some stuff like um, I'm going through a list of songs that I know blew up in 1990 and almost almost had a shot to hit um, number one on the charts. Of course, we all know what song hit number one first. And I wanted to understand exactly why it was the song that hit number one. I kind of had an idea, but I just needed confirmation. And I got the confirmation and I wanted to break down all the errors that were made 
like trial and error, all the things, all the mistakes that were made or what happened that prevented this song that when you go back and you look at the charts and you go back and look at the information and go back and look at all the articles and the things that were written and how it was doing in different regions. Yes, that all this information, all these reports are available. Research. How is it possible this song didn't hit number one? And it comes down to things like um, not enough formats were available for sale uh, from the label. They only put out uh, 12-inch singles. They didn't provide 12-inch singles, singles, uh, CD singles. Or they had uh, they put out a bunch of promotional seven inches, but they didn't invest in other formats. Or uh, another big thing that I discovered, which I'm going to get into, is radio. Right. So it's a combination of sales uh, and radio play. Now there are, again, you have reports. So you have different regions and different stations that report about how this song did, how it's added. You have uh, silver ads, platinum ads, you have uh, regular rotation, you have um, just uh, the, the high rotation and what have you. Then you have like the ads across the region. All these things are countable. But the thing is that you have black radio, but then you have pop top 40 rock radio. And if there aren't enough of those stations that add the song, then you're not going to get the groundswell needed to get, you know, number one set um, to get the number one spot. It's easier for a rock or pop song or a dance song to get to, to become number one. Than it is for a rap song because you're dealing with the elephant in the room, racism. Will a rap, will a rock or a pop top forty station play a rap song? What kind of rap song does it need to be to gain that kind of play? How come Run DMC did? How come Run DMC's Walk This Way didn't ultimately become number one on the Billboard Hot 100? And how did it get so high on the charts? Because it actually got added to rock stations. So there's a whole lot going on there, right? And I'm, I, I, had, I did a lot of like deep dive researching into that. So that's one thing I was doing. And then in uh, doing that, I also discovered. So a th- thing on the side, I was trying to discover. I was trying to break down exactly Hammer's uh, You Can't Touch This Single. Because my memory of what happened, which you can't touch this, is also another crazy thing because um, radio, again, has regions. And I discovered something I didn't know, that MC Hammer and Capital Busted Records had a unique single rollout for MC Hammer's Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him album that I didn't even realize. I discovered this doing research. So I was most people under the impression that MC Hammer's um, you, uh, Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him album, You Can't Touch This was the main lead single. It wasn't. So this led to me going on Twitter and being like, yo, um, I have questions and pretty much the only person that could confirm or deny some of the stuff that I found is MC Hammer himself. Why? Because MC Hammer, Stanley Burrell... And um, uh, Big Lou were the people at Busted who actually made some of the choices with Capital. They weren't just out there in the cold. Because you discover that there, you can't touch this wasn't the lead single. The lead single was actually Help the Children. Capital V15540 12-inch. This is how deep I, I discovered it. Added uh, between the week of January 13th and 20th. Written about January 20th on Billboard. 
and is on the charts already in early January, in, in January, late January. Help the children. I don't ever remember there being a help the children single early, but there was. There's physical copies. It's on the charts. What? So, um, please hammer don't hurt them. The album comes out February. All right. Then there's Dancing Machine, which I know was on the album, but Dancing Machine was a single. Like, you look at the early March Billboard charts, and Dancing Machine enters because back then the rap the rap uh, charts went to thirty. Yeah, I know. Everything else goes to like a hundred seventy five. The rap chart stops at thirty, and of course the rap charts begin March eleventh, nineteen eighty nine. Dancing Machine enters the rap charts on March tenth, nineteen ninety at number twenty nine on the rap charts, and I'm like, there was a Dancing Machine single, a physical single. I go and look. Yes, there was a Dancing Machine single. Now, what happened was, and this is something I didn't know either. Apparently, You Can't Touch This started being played on radio sometime in late March. While Help the Children is on the charts and so's Dancing Machine. But at some point, can't touch this takes off so much that Capital decides to not send Dancing Machine or or do the full campaign to send Dancing Machine to radio, which I had no idea that was even a thing that they were trying to do. So they abandon it and they decided to put and Capital pivots and decides to put their push into um, can't touch this. So Dancing Machine stalls before it even gets sent to radio or campaigning or pushed it radio because of the rise of can't touch this because of the overwhelming um, feedback from people calling in the radio stations or or whoever does the reporting. So they pushed the can't touch this video and they discovered that um, the first reports for can't touch this, this is something I, I'm like, what? It enters the club play charts at number 40 on April 14th, 1990. And according to everything I've read, there was no can't touch this single. There was no physical can't touch this single. At least when it enters the charts on the club play charts on um, April 14th, um, 1990. And when they did finally decide to. um, Oh, and there's something I actually read physically read. Billboard refuses to have can't touch this chart, even though it's burning up radio and 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 the club. Because there's no physical, um, there's no physical format for it. So uh, Capitol Records puts out 12 inches, just a 12 inch vinyl, and then Billboard's like, "All right, we're going to let it chart." So April 14th, it's on the club playlist. It's on the club play at number 40. But then April 28th, um, 1990, it enters number 27 on the Hot 100 and it's and it's um, it just starts going crazy from there. to, To make you fully understand what I'm saying is that it enters the club playlist charts two weeks earlier and it's already number 27 on the Hot 100 two weeks later. When it finally charts officially. I didn't say the black charts. I said the hot 100. Okay. 
to, to further understand how weird this is. When, um, when you look at You Can't Touch This, and You Can't Touch This is like number 43 on the hot black singles, right? Because they report earlier rather than later. So when it's number 27 on the hot 100, it's number 43 on the hot black singles. It could have been higher if they reported later. But at the same time, you look at Help the Children, and Help the Children was already number 93 on the black charts, which went to 100, and it already been on the charts for 14 weeks. Now, again, I don't remember anybody ever playing the Help the Children single on the radio in Boston. I don't remember seeing the Help the Children single. I remember you can't touch this being everywhere. So that's something that I need to like really delve into, because one of the things is that the race to have the first uh, rap single hit 100 on the Hot 100 I hit number one on the Hot 100 is you can't touch this by hammer should have hit number one. It topped out at number seven. Why did it only top out at number seven? Ultimately, because um, Capital did not release any more formats other than um, 12 inch single early enough. They didn't put out the single. They didn't put out the CD single. If they did. And plus the airplay factor which is also something that I need to like really delve into and break down 100%, it could have possibly reached number one before Vanilla Ice hit number one with Ice Ice Baby. But also at the same time, um, I have to go back, I go back and I look at all the singles from 1990 that started blowing up crossover rap. The other song that I haven't talked about that was blowing up early in 1990 that was flying up the charts. Salt and Pepper's Expression, I've discussed that. But what I haven't talked about is um, Digital Underground Humpty Dance. Digital Underground's Humpty Dance was also in that same category. It was a song that pop radio embraced and started to play. Salt and Pepper's Expression was another song that was along that format. But there were other songs that were out. Uh, Mellow Manases Minterosa also uh, blew up later on. So when you look at it, just a Friend by Bismarcky, which came out late 1989, but was blowing up into 1990. When you start looking at the charts, you start noticing like, yo, there's, this really, there's a really a shift in the charts. And another thing, too, that even um, affected the rap charts and how the shift was happening was um, Belle Biv DeVoe puts out Poison, right? So Belle Biv, De Belle Biv DeVoe's Poison comes out. February, late February, 1990. Um, the single first like hits the charts somewhere around March 10th, 1990. That's when you first start seeing like any like mention of it or anything happening with it, right? Then you have, uh, you see it again around like March 20th, 1990 on the charts, right? Then April 7th, 1990, the album enters the Black Albums at number 48. So that song ends up like blowing up and flying up the charts. Now what that does is, so here's the thing, here's why it's such a disruptive song. Belle Biv DeVoe is essentially making a hybridized version of R&B. New Jack Swing had already taken over in uh, summer 88 and far as black music became the default sound to like black music. It started pushing out older black folks that made entrenched R&B in that space. So it got to be a thing where 
you are either making this kind of R&B or you are moving into the um, adult contemporary space. Freddie Jackson ain't trying to do the running man with these young folks. Peebo Bryson ain't trying to do the running man with these young folks. Melba Moore ain't trying to do that. You know, Natalie Cole ain't trying to do that. Melissa Morgan, who came from the Hush Sound era, ain't trying to do that. Kashif sure as hell ain't trying to do that. Uh, Luther Vandross ain't doing that. He's one of the funkiest producers between 1976 and 1986. This is a different, this is a different chamber for him. So a lot of these older black artists are moving more into an adult contemporary lane with established R&B. And like they're trying to get funky and stay young and it just doesn't sound right. And Belle Biv DeVoe comes in at the top of 1990 and it's super. It's like New Jack Swing on crack. And before that, you had um, Bobby Brown who came out with My Prerogative, which is one of the blackest so it's my prerogative is so black. It's like menthol cigarettes, Uno, you know, borrowing five dollars, not giving it back. It's a blackety black, black, black song. It's like having a cousin named Junebug. It's blackety black, black, black. And it crosses over and knocks out like warrant. And like, you know, like the rockiest rock, L.A. guns, were they even out back then? You know, like, it just knocks off like the most rock, the most crossover hairband metal rock you can imagine. And it's Bobby Brown. Bobby Brown was a, is probably the biggest star outside of Michael Jackson and Prince in black music uh, between 1988, 1989, 1990. It's just crazy how like artists from Boston ended up like completely crushing everything and dominating black music and pop music in that same era. It's crazy, right? But it kind of created this new dynamic Uh Bell Biv DeVoe's Poison. But on the other side, while I'm doing this research, I'm discovering that there's something else that kind of um is changing the charts and how people perceive what a song can be and what where it charts and its growth. I've talked about it on the um episode going back to uh season one of Dart Against Humanity. Jane Childs don't want to fall in love. Okay, it enters the Hot 100 at number 75 on February 17th, 1990. Now, my early findings were that it seems like Jane Childs don't want to fall in love. I believe the album came out in 1989, but the song, that single, really started taking um, uh, rising in either late 1989, December 1989, or January 1990 on black radio, largely because the single was a white label. It wasn't a picture sleeve. And people just thought the song was funky, so it took off at black radio. All right? And then what happened is it went from black radio and it crossed over to pop radio. So it started um, gaining steam at pop radio And then somewhere along early 1990, somewhere between January and February 1990, I haven't pinpointed when, and this is something I'm going to do research on, the video starts getting played because I remember the video playing on video video shows. And this is before I had cable. So my perspective on this is way different. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to go back through the old charts and look at when uh, Jane Child's Don't Want to Fall in Love video started getting added to uh, video stations and entered the regular rotation or the, uh, the medium rotation, at least. And this is something I can actually look up because those, th- those things actually exist. I can look when, out, when singles, when videos entered rotation. It's amazing. So 
I'm going to look because my contention is that once Jane Child's video started getting played and it was very visible that Jane Child was white. All of a sudden, the way that they uh, marketed Jane Child changed immediately. Jane Child, the original version of Don't Want to Fall in Love, didn't get played on black radio anymore. Uh, suddenly, they serviced the uh, Teddy Riley remix, which is not as funky as the original. I've said this before. I'll go to my grave saying it. Okay. So she's still getting spins on black radio, but not for the original version anymore. And the new version of the single has her on it. Has her picture on it. The version that they send out now that's selling, which is nuts. But it blows up and pop and crossover radio. And it's tearing up the charts. Starting uh, February 17th, 1990, when it starts its ascent up the charts. Now, the crazy thing about uh, Jane Child's Don't Want to Fall in Love uh, ascending the Hot 100 in 1970, um, uh, starting in February 17th, 1990, is that at the same time, at the same damn time, Lisa Stansfield's Been Around the World begins its ascent up the um, charts on the black music side. So there's a lot of research like the uh, the Jane Child piece I have like down because I've done previous research on it before last year and, and before when I did my um, 1990 piece, which I think ended up in my book. But the uh, alternate piece about uh, Lisa Stansfield from her album, I believe it's called Devotion is the other piece that I want to do because it got to be a thing where now you had these defined roles in music where if you are a white R&B artist, you had to pretty much announce this is a white R&B artist. Whereas before you could be white and do a synth pop or whatever or rock or what have you, another format and still get spins on black radio without having to completely define that I'm a white soul artist. You just rebought the record. It's on the black charts. Robert Palmer. You know, it's just what happened. Boss Skaggs. It's what happens. But it turns out that like around 1990, this is the year where, and I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that rap was taking up more of the black music charts and it was busting out of the the rap charts and so they had to really define that more so what they needed with the record label and the promotions people needed the white artists to define I'm R&B you know that's coming out of the era again where uh you have uh like Sheena Easton when she went over to MCA she couldn't just be a white artist on MCA. She pretty much was in the black music department at MCA with the Lover and Me era. I believe I talked about that with the awkward dancing in the videos. And it started from like 1985 when Sugar Walls starts going up the charts. Something else I've been researching. Nelson George did an article, a piece breaking down who produced and wrote Sugar Walls. Alexander Nevermind and this other guy. This other guy actually works at the... um. Works for this publishing company. This publishing company is, is attached directly to Fargnoli, whatever, whatever, who manage Prince. And Alexander Nevermind is a pen name of Prince. So Prince wrote and produced Sugar Walls. That's why it's so funky. And that's why it's on the black charts. And I'm just reading this and I'm like, yo, these dudes really turned into, uh, um, this dude really turned into um, Sherlock Homeboy over trying to figure out why this song. It is it, so funky and danceable. Hilarious. But, um, yeah, I was doing a whole lot of research on that. Uh, 85 and 90. One of the other things that I was doing, too, is uh, I was trying to figure out what piece about 85 could I do because people just don't research that deep. They'll re they'll go for 95, they'll go for 2000 because it's easier. Doing research on 1985 is super hard. It's super hard. 
And I don't mind doing that because that's the that's the deep end of the pool. That's where I reside. I can't swim. Anyway, um, so one of the things I was trying to figure out was early 1985, I know for a fact, Run DMC releases their follow-up album to Run DMC, which was the legendary King of Rock. The sophomore album, King of Rock. Um, I know what comes out early, really early in 1985. And it's interesting because um, it took a while for Run DMC's first album to gain steam and 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 sell and move up the charts. And then it had, uh, it's kind of crossed over and then the Fresh Fest happened and then they gained more, they gained more, uh, it, it, it really took off from there, right? But the thing is that Run DMC's debut album came out in late March 1984. It goes gold December 17th, 1984. After the Fresh Fest and all this and all this other stuff and um graffiti rock and all these other things happen, right? So it's insane to think that they put out another album like about a month after they went gold from the album that they released the previous March. So King of Rock comes out late January 1985. I'm trying to pinpoint exactly when. So I'm going back through old publications and trying to figure it out. When does the King of Rock video hit MTV and BET? I'm still trying to still trying to um, nail that down because, again, I have to figure out what I'm trying to get to sell to somebody. But if something else comes along and I get paid for that, then I don't really feel the need to try to sell anything to anybody. I'll write a piece and then put it in my book. Whichever book I, um, I choose. So this is these are the options that I have. And then what ends up happening is it's like I just sit on all this research and it's like, what what do I do with it? Like me figuring out things like March 9th, 1990 is rap mania. Van Silk DJ Productions has a, a his first pay-per-view event, Rap Mania which uh, happens March 9th, 1990, simultaneously in the Apollo Theater in Harlem and um, Hollywood Palace in Hollywood. You know, I find out the date that Professor Griffin search fought over the gas face video in the Def Jam offices. You know, I figured that out. I find out the first mention of um, a tribe called Quest. Uh, I left my wallet in El Segundo. I found this article that happened in Newsweek in March 1990 by Jerry Adler called Rap Rage, which ends up becoming like the um, the cover story in March 1990. And it kind of um, validates that rap is doing so well and moving up the chart so much that it's scaring people. And people are getting concerned about what that means, and it kind of has a has a has a racial connotation to it. It's racially tinged. It's racially charged, like Gambit from the X Men. Only except except for it being kinetic energy, is racial. Not Rachel. Racial. And I find a lot of articles like this, you know, they started in 1989, but then they come all the way up through 1989, uh, 1990 and 1991. And they exist when rap music and R&B, which is infused with rap, like water that's infused with some type of fruit um, or IPA breweries, you know, infused beer starts taking over and they start looking at the hot 100 
or the dance charts or whatever the Billboard 200 is, and they start seeing a bigger and bigger percentage of it being a certain type of music. And it happened in black music, too. There was the stretch between those years, 1984 and 1988, where the black music establishment would look at the charts, look at the, um, the black music charts, the album sales and single sales, and they start seeing the percentage of New Jack Swing or rap um, influenced music or just straight up rap songs or rap albums were taking up more and more of the black music charts and it made them uneasy and uncomfortable. It started being 20%, then 25%. Then 30, 33%. Then it starts creeping up towards 40%. And a lot of the mainstays and the staples and the familiar names start disappearing and going off into the adult contemporary charts. And then there's a lot of these young people and these new names that they're not familiar with. There's always this transition. There's always this changeover. There's always these sea changes. And one of the things that I enjoy doing is going back and researching and going through those changes and transformations and writing about them because I remember them happening. I remember the uneasiness. (laughs) I remember the changeovers. But then when I look and see other people's perspective of it in real time, it's 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 eye opening. It's amazing. Because when you read these articles about people that are on the outside looking in and they, you could just hear, you could just read and just feel the worry and the concern about what's happening to the music that I love. And then I think about how older cats talk about um, hip hop or rap or R&B and it's not what I remember or whatever. And it's like also you have to keep in mind perspective. You're not the consumer. You're not the you're not the fan base anymore. This music isn't catering to you. The music that was made in 88, 89, 90, 91, 92, 93, 94, 95, they were making it for you. The DJ was playing it for you. The radio station was playing it for you. This magazine was made for you. The ads are appealing to you. You're not that person anymore radio is not trying to buy ads so you listen to the radio they don't care that you listen to the radio they're not trying to attract you as a listener they're not they don't care and that's something that you have to come to grips with and that's something that i have come to grips with and even then i'm like but somebody's leaving money on the table but then you realize when you get into my space as a writer I look around, who my age is writing about this shit anymore? There's a reason why these these articles and this stuff is missing what it's missing because we're not the aim anymore. We're not the concern anymore. We're not even there. So we're going to get everything wrong about this space if we dive into it because nobody from that ever is writing because they don't think anyone's reading. So why do we need to be accurate? I'm one of those people that really digs into the why, the why, the why. Um, Another thing about the why and like me not being able to leave anything alone and always having to um, decompose everything. Something that's recently started happening. My book, the book of dart has gone back into the um, the top 100 and the um, rap books chart on Amazon. It's re-entered it. So right around um, late November, it sold out. So it wasn't available to purchase using one click or add to cart on Amazon. And if you did try to buy it, it would send you directly to third-party um, third um, sellers. 
And it was the weirdest thing. It was like that for like three weeks. And typically when that happens, Amazon tells you that it's sold out and it will restock on this date. It will give you a fake date, but then it will update it closer to when the restock is um, happening. There was no restock information. It just sent you straight to third party. And it was really weird. During a few stretches of those sending you to third parties, my book was still in the um, top 100, but it would fall out immediately because there weren't enough con uh, sustained sales to stay there. So I'd pretty much given up on that happening. And I was like, I'm losing out on so many sales going into the holiday season. What happens is on December 11th and 12th, the restock is finally in. And starting December 12th solid, you could buy my book again, um, add to cart and um, buy it one click, Amazon Prime, all that. But I kind of feared that that delay meant that that three weeks that it was down meant that this book is never going to return back to the um, top 100. And I missed out on a whole lot of sales. It's gonna. It's like the tenth, eleventh week, and nobody cares really anymore. The the time has passed. Entering the twelfth week, the book jumps back into. Uh, first, it was at like one hundred three, and I was surprised because it jumped one hundred fifty points to one hundred three. I'm like, yo, what's, yo, this is crazy. It's just it's at one hundred three. Like just the fact that it's a hovering around one hundred is enough for me. So I'm like, yeah, it was like right after Christmas. After Christmas, past Christmas, the new year, it's staying right there, right around 100. It'll drop back down, but then it comes back right around 100, like 105, 107, 118, 116, what have you. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. I'm good. But then it jumps back into uh, like 82. I'm like, what? Then it drops down to like... 101. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. Then it jumps back into like 88. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. But then it'll drop down to like 112. I'm like, yeah, I expected that. But then it jumped to 73 on the first. I'm like, the 73? And Amazon's um, charts update oftentimes they update as early as hourly. So you can have this real ill surge of sales but then someone else's surge of sales, like a Shea Serrano, you know, or Quest Love, or or Kathy and Kathy Andoli, or anybody who makes like a, a like a book. I'm never really killed by um, Russ because Russ's book is all the way up there. Sophia Chang's book is all the way up there. So their sales aren't really going to kill me, but somebody who's hovering around 50 or below 50 to 75 can affect me. So if they go on a sales surge for whatever reason, I'm dropping out of the hot 100 or the top 100. But what happened is I'm in the seventies and eighties. And then when the um, update happens, I'm still in the one hundreds. So this morning, I was at number 79. I'm like, what? All right, January 2nd, I'm at 79. I was at 73 yesterday. Okay, cool. I guess that's cool. Then I drop down, and I'm still like in, I'm at 86. I'm like, what? All right. So I drop down again. I'm still in the hundreds. I drop down again. I'm at 101. So that's like late in the afternoon. I figure, all right, I'm good. For that day, you know what I'm saying? I'm not going to end up back there. But then I go back and I look at like 10, 10, 15 p.m. just for the hell of it. And I'm at 91. And I'm like, how crazy could it be that I start the day in the, hot, in, in, the, in the top 100 and I end it in the top 100? Now, for those of you that don't understand what this means. It's extremely hard in a world where there are. Hundreds of thousands of books in your space and millions of books, period, to 
to have your book in the top 100 in any Amazon category. Especially one that didn't have a publicist where you don't have a, a, a public where you don't have a, a PR or publicity agent where you're not being added to any um, charts or lists. You haven't been written about. You haven't done a press tour. I haven't appeared at any colleges. I haven't appeared at any universities. I haven't done NPR. I haven't done anybody's podcast to talk about the radio. I haven't been on any radio shows. I haven't make any, made appearance, appearances on t- television. I wrote a book for an independent publisher about rap and a whole bunch of essays. And the book is still selling. On an independent publisher. That's insane. And it's in its 12th week. And it's January 3rd now. January 8th will officially be the third month that it's out. That'll be like the 13th going into the 14th week that has been out. Because math. So just all of that happening is um, insane and is crazy. And this podcast has already gone over time and it's hilarious because I don't even know what the hell I'm going to call this. Oh, and also the last podcast I did about the top, my top five Christmases was the lowest, (laughs) the least listened to uh, podcast episode I've ever done since I started doing this in April um, 2018. April 22nd, 2018 was my first episode of Dead Against Humanity. I did 69 episodes. That episode was the least listened to one. And I think it also had to do with the fact that I was so busy over the Christmas holiday that I didn't promote it at all. But usually I figure if I've been doing this podcast for like over two years, people know when the podcast comes out and they listen to it. I just figured people didn't like it because it was half-assed. The one I did after Thanksgiving was was half-assed and the one I did after Christmas was half-assed. So I, 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 t- I, take, the, I take the hit for that. Um, But just know that the last podcast of this season, season four, is episode 75. This is episode 70. Don't know what I'm going to call this yet. One.